if you want a real movement, you've got to be heavy on the experience side with a dosing of the intellectual support. Welcome to the Social Change Podcast, the podcast for agents of change. And now your host, Matt Needham. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Social Change Podcast. This is episode three with Isaac Morehouse. Isaac is an entrepreneur, thinker, and communicator dedicated to the relentless pursuit of freedom and an advocate of self-directed learning and living. He's the founder and CEO of Praxis, an intensive nine-month program combining a paid apprenticeship at a startup with personal coaching, professional development projects, and interdisciplinary education, leading to a full-time job for those who want more than college. Isaac has been involved in a number of business and nonprofit startups. He previously worked at the Institute for Humane Studies, where he raised support, mentored students, and directed educational programs. Prior to that, Isaac was at the Mackinac Center for Public Policy, where he created and directed students for a free economy. He's also the host of his own podcast, where he covers education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice, and how to live free. We should check it out at IsaacMorehouse.com. Isaac, thanks for joining me today. Hey, thanks, Matt. That was quite a bio. I sound like a legit person now. <laughs> um, I I really wanted to have you on here because of that background of the different projects you've worked on in social change. Uh, but before we dive into those particular things you've worked on or are working on now, I just want to start with how did you first get into studying social change? What were the biggest influences on you um, in the world of theory before you even got into practice? Mm. You know, it probably started practice is probably what drew me drew me to theory actually so when i was uh in my early teens starting at about age 12 i used to go every summer on these sort of uh humanitarian some were sort of humanitarian some were sort of religious some were sort of both like mission trips to um places like mexico peru kenya honduras uh um i'm trying to think i'm missing a few in there <laughs> anyway uh so I would go every summer, basically from age 12 to about 18, 19. And I was very much like I think a lot of young people, especially if you have your first experience in a very poor country, I wanted to make the world a better place. I, I, I wanted to see poverty and I wanted to see human suffering and I wanted to maximize human potential, thriving, freedom, etc. And I sort of started looking to how do you make that happen? Because I knew I could see with it. I mean, even at age 12, 13, 14, I had all these things that I would have done differently if I was running a short term missions organization. And, and even the even the structure of short term missions itself, I saw pretty quickly. This is cool. If somebody's suffering and they're hungry, you give them a piece of bread. That's cool. It feels good. And it is a cool thing to do. And it can actually change an individual life in some cases. Usually it changes the lives of the people who go more than the recipients because yeah. it's just a, a worldview changer. But there's nothing wrong with it. But it really isn't getting to the root. And I'm I'm very, very much like I never want to waste any energy on things that don't have maximum impact. And as a kid, I always thought, I always felt kind of guilty, like I was just lazy. Like in everything, I always wanted to find the shortcut and the trick, you know, like my mom tells us to rake the lawn in a certain way and I'd find a faster way, you know, and I like kind of try to cheat it. But I, I want to get to like the source. And so 
without being too long-winded, I guess I already have been too long-winded. I, I, I saw there's something, there's such a limit to directly helping people in this way. So what's really going on? How can we prevent these conditions from existing in the first place? And that drew me really into sort of understanding and studying political institutions, economic institutions. And I started to believe, okay, human freedom, that's the thing, a free market. These things are, are what's necessary. Um, and that's what drew me into learning about the ideas of liberty and, um, you know, really understanding what makes the world a better place first. And then it was a long process of both intellectual and my career literally mapped onto my intellectual journey, like step for step. Yeah. And I don't know which one caused the other, but they just were in tandem of now that I know what I think the conditions for human flourishing are, how to bring those about because intentions are not enough and intentions plus actions are not enough. You can have great intentions. You can even know what the conditions are going to be. Okay. Freedom, human freedom. That's what we need. And I want to bring that about for all the right reasons. And now I'm just going to do something that is not enough. Cause if the thing you're doing doesn't work, you're, you might as well not have the intention at all. So I really wanted to understand how to do that as best as I could. And it sort of took a decade, decades long and, it, and it's ongoing, I should say, um, process of, of intellectual discovery and practical experimentation, frankly. Cool. So let's talk about the experiments you've kind of ran over the years and what you've learned from them. If I understand correctly, one of the first career stops you made was working for a previous guest of mine, uh, Leandro Lett, who is a politician, and you helped him out and worked for some other politicians as well. Um, so what did you do in that realm, and what did you kind of take away from those years? Uh, yeah, what did I do? Um, nothing of any long-term significance. <laughs> what did I learn? That politics is literally the farthest removed activity from creating any kind of positive change in the world. Almost anything is more productive than politics. It is the distraction, the game for fools to get caught up in. Uh, that's what I learned. I truly, <laughs> it sounds radical, but but I learned it from, from two things. So I, I okay, I wanna make more liberty in the world. I wanna make the world more free. What's the first thing all of us think? You know, I was 19 and I had graduated college. I was married, I had a mortgage. I needed a job, but I also wanted something that I liked. I turned down a very lucrative job offer to be a drug rep at a pharmaceutical company because I knew I, I didn't want to do work that I hated. That was like my one rule. I want to do things that I, I find meaning in. And so I went up to Lansing, Michigan and offered to intern for free for somebody, which is a great way to get a job, by the way. Um, and for the first two weeks, I went up uh, uh, two days a week for two weeks to intern for free. And then the second week, they're like, oh, we'll pay you 10 bucks an hour. And then the third week, I had an interview with two different offices who were hiring and they had been impressed with this other guy's, you know, telling of my, my wonderful intern duties. Anyway, I got hired by a state representative there, a guy named Fulton Sheen, a uh, descendant of the uh, late Bishop Fulton Sheen, who used to have a TV show, a Catholic theologian. Um, little, little trivia for you. So I went in believing that the political system, all these politicians are these big ideological forces and they're mostly liberal and there's some conservatives and there's a little sliver of libertarianism in there and you had to like fight this ideological battle. And I realized almost immediately, nobody in politics is ideological at all. They are, I mean, they almost treat it as like this dualistic endeavor. They might even have a ideology that they hold privately almost as like a hobby. Um, but that has no impact on what they actually do 
in terms of their political silliness and gamesmanship. I remember one guy worked for some, you know, in the in terms of policy, a very like liberal, modern liberal uh, politician, always trying to increase taxes and all this stuff. And I walked in the office and I see Ayn Rand and Milton Friedman on the shelf. I said, Who, whose books are those? He goes, oh, those are mine. And I'm like, <laughs> what? really? He's like, yeah, I'm a libertarian. But it's like your job is just helping your politician succeed, which means more power, more influence, more positive PR, uh, better parking spot at the state capitol. I mean, literally, those are your, your jobs. More more dollars from donors, more paid for drinks, uh, lifelong position once their term limits are up. And so you succeed at that by doing all the stupid stuff that politics incentivizes. And then you can sort of maintain a life of the mind if you want to, you know, sort of separate from that. So that was a big shock. And I discovered around the same time um, economics, which I had casually been interested in. I had read Friedman's, um, capitalism and freedom in, uh, in college. My brother recommended it to me. And, you know, here I was with a degree in political science and literally in the entire time getting this degree, no one had even told me that the field of public choice economics existed, which is an economic approach to political science. And people have won Nobel prizes for this. Like how, shitty is that education if you'll excuse my language i don't know if this is a you're fine <laughs> so anyway i discover public choice theory and i start diving in and i'm like this is perfectly describing everything i'm experiencing and i actually felt kind of dumb because i'm like if i just would have studied this and just really applied like the rationale of, really of successful of logical human action well no i would have i would have known that politics was doomed from the start, mm, yeah. you know, but like I got in and I saw it and I was like, this is so screwed up. Nobody in here is generating any change. They can't. The inevitable incentive of this structure is to make the world worse, period. And if you fight against that, you are fighting against the structure itself, which means you cannot survive, mm -hmm. except like every once in a while there can be a gadfly or a pariah here or there that kind of, you know, fits the role and gets to be the martyr or whatever. But it's, it's like... The analogy that I that I use, because I think it's the most accurate, trying to make the world freer by engagement with politics is like trying to put a casino out of business by playing at the craps table. It's like, you know what? I hate this casino. I hate everything it stands for. It's it's a, a, a bad thing for society. I want to put it out of business. So I'm going to go in there and I'm going to play blackjack better than anyone else. And I'm going to I'm going to shut it down by taking all the house's money. It's like, no, you can't do that. It's systematically set up so that every time you try to play, you actually make it more powerful, period. Um, so I saw that through studying public choice and being there. And I was there for three years. And by the end of it, I was like, I've got to get out of here because I already know that it doesn't generate change. I got really good at my job quickly, which is super easy because your job is just like once you figure out what, how to do the little stuff that matters there. And I knew that it was so easy to get sucked in to tons of vacation days, great benefits, a job that's easy peasy, everybody buying you drinks, you're in a bubble where you think you're important because lobbyists know your name and buy onesies for your baby when they're born and you get free <laughs> tickets to Michigan, Michigan State football and, you know, box seats at MSU basketball games. And it's a comfortable existence. And I was like, it's going to kill me. I've got to get out. But, um, but so, so you, you, went, you went on to work in some very different projects, though, um, working with young people about the ideas like public choice economics about how this whole system works why it is what how it is um so what was that experience like uh, shifting out of that realm to working with young people interested in it but not going into politics directly 
Yeah. So this was like the next genesis and it's kind of a multi-step part. So from politics directly, I was like, this is, this is bull. This is a waste. So I went into sort of the policy education realm. So I worked for a think tank, but I was running like student programs to try to get students interested in the ideas of free markets and thinking that if you can get the public to value certain free market policies, they will create the incentive on the politicians to behave differently. Because just telling the politicians or informing them or electing better ones is just stupid. It's utterly stupid. It's playing, it's playing a, you know, blackjack at the casino. So, okay, so this sort of educational role, um, and, and in fact, my next couple jobs were similar. So then I moved to the Institute for Humane Studies, which is almost like an even more meta level version of that. Instead of directly educating sort of all people on you know the general populace or the politically interested populace on these ideas. It's let's identify the influencers. Let's find the people with a disproportionate influence on public opinion and let's help them. Let's educate them. Let's support them. Let's get them steeped in the ideas of classical liberalism. And so I was running programs there. And my last thing I did there was fundraising, which again, this this mirrors this desire I've always had to like get to maximum impact. I want maximum leverage for my efforts. And so I went from doing politics, total waste. I went from educating a large number of people very broadly on free markets are cool. You know, okay, there's, that's cool. If you can, to the extent you can change people's beliefs and change the incentives. And then let's, let's get the people who are influencers and let's help them. And they're going to have massive reach. So if I can, if I can help the next Milton Friedman, one or two or three of those, I'm going to reach, you know, infinitely more people than I can directly. And then I went to raising money for those efforts, which was like even more like, raise the money. You know, I, I liken it to instead of, you know, I started in missions, give a man a fish instead of give a man a fish or teach a man a fish or, you know, sell a man a net. It's like raise the money to build the factories, to make the rope that make the nets that help people catch millions of fish. <laughs> That's kind of what I saw my, my role as there. Um, and my intellectual maturation and really radicalization in terms of understanding that there's no legitimate or honorable or decent role or need for the state and that there's no need for political engagement, which sort of flows out of that, and and, and an understanding of public choice, um, my whole conception of how the world changes began to shift. And I thought I had a complete picture of it at that point. It was kind of the one that you talked about in episode one, this idea of like, you know, the, the, the capital good structure of the world of ideas, mm -hmm. where you've got the original thinkers, you know, you picture this triangle, and then this sort of, you know, specialists or popularizers, and then public opinion, Public opinion is what shapes the beliefs of the public. Those beliefs create that Overton window of what's possible. And that's the little sandbox that politicians, you know, dink around in. And so getting to those thinkers at the top is going to have the, the most influence. It's the capital goods sort of um, approach to uh, investing in capital goods of the, the world of ideas. And that was where I thought it ended. I was like, good, I finally figured out where to where to go. Um, but that ended up changing. Too. But I feel a big butt <laughs> coming on here. Yeah. So, so what, uh, what was wrong with that? Okay. So there's a lot right with that. Um, a couple smaller sort of squabbles, maybe, um, one at Je Jeffrey Tucker ha had a couple years ago, an interesting insight on this. The one is to, to conceive of sort of a market for ideas to map it onto a capital structure of a physical market is a little bit problematic for just the reason that ideas are non-scarce. Um, so I, I, you guys might've touched on this in your episode as well, but um, so you don't necessarily have like 
one center where you have this, you know, you know, a production facility for goods is going to make production goods that are going to make, you know, mid-range goods that are going to make consumer goods and yada, yada, yada. So if you control that, you know, whatever the raw material input, you've got the ability to influence all these products. Ideas are not like that though. It's not like you control the one core idea and it's scarce and then you've got to get it to the distribution and get it into the public consciousness. Anybody can tap into it at any time. Like if you're trying to create a, a, you know, trying to take oil and turn it into gas for a gas station, you've got all these processes and it's all scarce. And so those gas stations are really important. The pipeline's really important. The refining is really important. Ideas are like if you have a, a deposit of oil, anybody at any time can tap into it and turn it into gas for their car. Like, and it can be done, it can be replicated, it can be spread, it can be, so there's already that sort of problem with like the the, the analogy breaks down in some senses, but it, it holds up valuable enough to understand that when it comes to ideas alone, I think that makes a ton of sense. The beliefs that people hold, let me, let me back up, let me back up <laughs> and cut me off if I'm talking too yeah. long, Matt, because right. I can go. So I still believe absolutely fundamentally that the beliefs of the public are the always and everywhere the ultimate binding constraint on the world we live in. Sure. What people believe is necessary, not what they believe is good or right, not what they think should exist, but what they believe has to exist. When people believe slavery is necessary, slavery has room to exist and it will exist and it will exist in varying degrees. There's wiggle room there within that sort of Overton window. So long as they believe political authority is necessary, it will exist. Even if they think it's a necessary evil, they can think it's morally wrong. They can think it's inefficient. They can think all these things. They can, they can buy the argument that it's unfair and immoral. They can buy the argument that it's less efficient than the market. But so long as they believe it's necessary, it will continue to exist. And the more things they believe are necessary for government to do, the more they will sort of allow government to get away with and, and the less freedom we'll have. So that belief is ultimately what matters. What changed in my understanding was that beliefs are tricky things. Most of them are not formed by ideas, as in like consciously considered ideas, mm -hmm. as in like arguments. So you probably have beliefs about, you know, when you walk into a hotel room and it's dark, what are you immediately going to do? Turn the light on. And you're going to, you're, you're going to instinctively put your hand about shoulder height or a little lower to the left or to the right and feel the wall Anything. and and feel a, a switch and flip it. Mm -hmm. Now, you don't have any, no one has had to argue you into an understanding of building codes, the architectural drawings of this hotel, the way electricity works and how you close a circuit and it means that the light's going to blah, blah, blah. There was no conscious ideas that you had to be argued into in order to take that action of looking for the light switch. Okay. That's a belief you have based on experience. Mm -hmm. So the majority of beliefs people have, including beliefs about what's right and wrong, about what's necessary for government to do, about how much freedom is good for society, the majority of those beliefs are shaped by experience, not by argument. So a small percentage of the population, I call them the remnant, are people who their core beliefs are formed largely by actual argument, logical consideration, reason, those people are very important. And to reach the remnant, arguments, ideas, education are important. That's what I would say is preaching to the choir. And I hate all this stuff about we should educate the masses and market the ideas of liberty. No, preach to the choir. 
Those are the only people worth preaching to. The choir came to hear your sermon. They're ready. They're interested. Don't go stand out on the street corner and try to preach to people who are busy just drinking their coffee and want to, you know, have you shut up. Go into the church building where they people showed up to hear you, right? So the education side where those ideas flow down in that way is important for that small number of people who really want to engage ideas. Keep those ideas alive and discuss them and discuss them deeply at the highest level and don't worry about popularizing them. If you wanna change the beliefs of the masses of humanity, you have to change their experiences. And I saw this right in front of me with the totally overused example that every libertarian is gonna be so tired of, but it just works, it's powerful. And that's the Uber example. How many people if you really wanted to, you could take 15 minutes and learn that taxi cartels are both immoral and inefficient. It's super simple. The work had been done. People had written about it, done studies on it, economic studies, you know, studies about corruption, all this stuff. It was there. It's a deadweight loss for the economy. It's unfair, blah, blah, blah. But the majority of people don't form their beliefs about the necessity of taxi medallions based on arguments. They form them based on experiences. They have only ever experienced a world that has them. And they know taxi drivers who have spent all their life trying to earn the money to buy one. And now those taxi drivers, like it would be unfair if somebody else could just come in after all that. And everyone's like, yeah, that makes sense. And that's all they see. Until you build an alternative to show them, until you show them Uber, they don't believe Uber is possible. Until you show them email and FedEx and DHL, they don't believe it's possible to communicate without the U.S. post office. Until you show them homeschooling and, and unschooling and private school alternatives, they don't believe education can happen without the state. You have to show people and create the alternatives so that they'll believe it's possible. If you ask them what they want, they'll want a faster government, right? To, to paraphrase Henry Ford's famous quote about consumers wanting a faster horse. You need to show them and expand their beliefs through experience. And, and I'll give you one final thing that really brought this home for me and like gave me chills and helped me see this was the breakthrough. I was watching this movie called The Call of the Entrepreneur that the Acton Institute put out. And it has a story of this guy from Hong Kong and he was like 11 years old or something and he was in communist China and he worked at the train station and he believed everything he had been raised with. He, again, his beliefs were not based so much on argument. He hadn't studied and considered political economy to decide that communist China was the best place in the world. He just assumed it was because that's all he had ever experienced. Everyone told him the rest of the world sucked. He had no reason to doubt it. When someone came into the train station, he moved their baggage, someone from Hong Kong, the guy gave him a piece of chocolate. He had never seen chocolate before. He had no idea what it was. The guy said, here, he took a bite. He said, I didn't know what this was. I didn't know anything about Hong Kong. But when I tasted that chocolate, I knew I had to go there. Because if they were capable of producing this experience, it has to be a better place than I'm in now. I'd never tasted anything like that. He literally tasted freedom. That experience expanded his belief in what's possible and he became uh, a great successful entrepreneur in Hong Kong who is fighting for freedom now. That was not one through smuggling in tracks about free markets. That was one through tasting an alternative to the crappy communist food. That was when I had that breakthrough. When I saw that guy, I was like, that's it. That's what I've been missing. So now I sort of think of a diamond where you've got the pyramid on top with the ideas flowing down that form a small part of our beliefs are from reasoned ideas that we have studied and educated ourselves on. And from the bottom up, you have materials and investors and inventors and entrepreneurs creating new experiences and even art, um, which can expand our belief of what's possible. And that forms the larger part, I would say, 
of our beliefs in what's possible. And those beliefs are what constrain the public. So I wanted to be a part of that. I don't want to argue about the way the world should be and try to convince you through ideas that freedom would be better or that the market could theoretically do a better job than government at something. I wanted to go build it right now and show you the market already is doing a better job. You don't need to understand any theory or become a libertarian to take part in the revolution of undermining the government. You just have to choose a product in the market that makes you happier and appeals to nothing but your self-interest. That's what got me into entrepreneurship and made me ultimately launch Praxis. So let me see if I understand this right by trying to paraphrase it for you. You see the necessity for change makers, people who bring about new experiences that show for people what change can be like, and it's going to be much more effective than talking about it or theorizing or arguing about it. And that's the essential elements to change you see and you want to participate in. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, so, a, that's a great... Uh, and, and again, I don't dismiss... Ideas matter. Like, mm-hmm. I love ideas. I'm deeply philosophical. I'm glad that Hayek and Friedman and, and in today's world, you know, basically all the economists from GMU um, are pretty much the only professors that make much sense with, <laughs> with a few other exceptions. Those are valuable, but those are valuable for a small number of people, mm-hmm. important, influential people, but a small number. So, I mean, what do you say to this? So, you know, uh, you brought up the Uber example, and I think it's a great example to discuss, um, you know. Uber clearly has been more effective at undermining the the medallion systems and such than any kind of white papers were on it. However, um, you know, Uber and the whole ride-sharing economy could be brought to a halt at any moment if the political system it was it, it was in politicians' interest to do so. And in order for it that, already is in their interest to do so, with the exception, well, they're going to do as much as they can get away with. And in some cities, they've been able to get away right. with. In, in, Temporarily, in some cities, it's 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 in their interest to do so overwhelmingly. But in some city, cities, it's I don't think it is in politicians' interest to do so if there's enough, um, you know. No, you, you're, you're right. You're right. If, I'm sorry. If, I, I should rephrase that. Yes, they they want to. They want to, or at least have force Uber to come and give them a cut of everything so they can be make sure they're the ones in power. Right. Um, I mean, and, and, yes, and, but they'll and, only do it if they can get away with it. Exactly. I mean, I'm saying like in many cases, politicians are allowing it because it's in their interest to do so, right? Why else would they would they do it? Um, and that's staying afloat because of, say, you know, organizers who are bringing together, you know, rideshare proponents and users and presenting the evidence about why it's beneficial and without those people keeping an eye on making that case before politicians. Meanwhile, no, I, dis- I disagree with that wholeheartedly. Me- have you ever met politicians? Well, you think have, has a single vote ever been changed by a committee testimony in the history of votes? It hasn't by what? Sorry, by a testimony in a, in a committee. Well, okay. So let's put it this way. Let's say someone making the case that enough voters care about it, that they should be allowed that that's holding them back. It's okay. So the politician is going to respond to whatever is going to benefit them the most. And actually, it's typically the reverse. Politicians are incredibly risk averse. They're about as far away from like, you know, sort of a risk taker as you can be in some ways. There are, there are occasionally politicians who will take a sort of political entrepreneurial risk and say, I'm going to be the, the guy who does this because I, I sense that there's enough support and they'll either crash or burn or they'll get a little movement behind them and, uh, you know, be a, be a sort of, you know, outsider perceived politician, but they're risk averse. So they're going to say, what can I get away with? And they're going to keep putting their finger in the wind and they're going to guess wrong. A lot of times they're going to, they're going to try to guess. They don't know. There's no clear line of where that window of political possibility is. 
it's kind of this fuzzy thing. And so they're going to they're going to push as far as they can towards, you know, basically away from freedom. And when they see crap, this is going to cost me, I'm going to be the bad guy, they'll back away. And that's not because somebody comes and gives them a white paper. I'll give you two examples with Uber. In Charleston, when Uber first launched here, it was illegal. And you were not allowed to be an Uber driver and you could get pulled over and find some uh, you know, ridiculous amount or whatever. So yet Uber continued and continues to this day and now it is legal. What happened? There wasn't the local think tank or interest group rallied around and all of the people who l- would love Uber, but they didn't even know it yet. Somehow they all magically came together and understood and they formed an interest group. And no, I mean, the interest is so dispersed, that'd be really hard to happen. And it didn't happen. What happened was Uber said, we're calling your bluff. We think that the government is misreading what they can get away with right now. They're out of touch. We're going to call their bluff and we're going to see if we can win. And Uber said, just keep driving, do it illegally. We'll pay all the fines. And now all of a sudden the government was like, oh, so if we want to enforce this, we're going to have to start arresting these Uber drivers. Some of them are single mothers. Some of them are poor minorities. Some of them are college students. We are going to look awful. We'll get crucified. Crap. They were, their bluff was called. In Austin, it was sort of the, the opposite. It was like, okay, we think we can get away with banning this. We've got enough clout. There's enough weird people in Austin that don't understand their own, <laughs> their own participation in the market. And they got away with banning it, but it's not going to last. And in fact, it already isn't lasting, not because a bunch of people are doing lobbying efforts, but because a bunch of people are going around and creating Arcade City and creating all these other things. And it's like the cat's out of the bag. Once people have tasted that chocolate, they know Hong Kong exists. And if you take it away from them, they're going to find a way back to it. Once they have seen what's possible, that was the breakthrough. Not the white papers or any of that other stuff. Now, that can matter for people who have a loud bullhorn to be like, look, let me tell you, not only do you want it because you liked having it and it was convenient, but there are actually good sound economic reasons. It's good for the economy, whatever. Those can be valuable at the margin for those intellectuals in certain positions. They can change the timing or the way that the arrangements are done. But the large movement, the bulk of the impetus comes from the alternative experiences people have that expand their beliefs. So let me ask you uh, a different take on this question, and that is we need to fight the intellectual war because um, the power of bad ideas is just so dang strong. And I'll give you an example. It seemed like for libertarians, free trade was an issue we had essentially won. For the past, I'd say, decade or two, there's been a consensus among economists and most politicians, at least in the direction of, if not outright, free trade. And right now, that has fallen apart. There's a huge protectionist swing right now, and it's based around the idea, which seems to be winning in the marketplace of ideas, that free trade is bad, we need protectionism, and that's not held up by the actual facts and the evidence if you look at it. Even for people who get their jobs displaced, free trade is on net pretty dang good. Um, so what do you say to someone like that who who's, would present you with a case where by not fighting the intellectual war, we're losing out and it's actually having a, a net harm on people's lives. Yeah. So first, let me just reiterate again real quick that to me, the war is about beliefs and just understanding that the vast majority of beliefs are formed by experience, that some are formed by ideas and arguments. That's absolutely true. But the vast majority by ideas and experience. So I'm not I'm not saying one versus the other. Okay. I'm just saying if you want a real movement, 
you've got to be heavy on the experience side with a dosing of the intellectual support. But in terms of this free trade argument, I would actually disagree with your premise that that free trade won in the realm of ideas and now it's losing in the marketplace of ideas. Where free trade is losing is not in the marketplace of ideas, it's in the prison of ideas that we call politics. You can't know anything about what the public actually believes and values during election season, period. Everything they say is an outright lie. You cannot judge people's beliefs based on elections. Why? Because elections are a completely artificial, zero-sum, rigged game where people won't tell you their actual beliefs. If I sent out a survey, if I owned a grocery store, and I sent out a vote, a ballot, every year, and everybody in 50-mile region got to vote on what we should keep on the shelves of that grocery store, I would have the worst inventory and it would make <laughs> all of the customers unhappy. People would, would do things to be funny. They'd be like, oh, you need more spinach and organics, even though they're fat and they would never actually buy those, but they're that they wish they were the type of person who would buy those. Or they'd say, you need more of this because I wish my neighbors would buy more of that. It's free. Voting is a free way to indulge your irrational biases. And so it would be the worst grocery store and people wouldn't like it. It wouldn't actually reflect their actual preferences and values. So when Donald Trump goes out and says free trade sucks and everyone cheers, they're indulging their irrational bias that appeals to some primitivism in them that's like, I'm scared of people taking my jobs. But they're not actually revealing what they value. If all of a sudden all the Walmarts double in prices because sandals can only be made domestically, if all of a sudden, like, People don't want that. They say they don't want immigrants, but they hire an all-immigrant crew to come landscape their house. People's self-interest reveals, and when they act in a true marketplace, reveals what they want. And in a marketplace of ideas, for it to be a real marketplace, there has to be skin in the game. So when people are in prediction markets, that's a little better. Uh, it's still only a little bit of skin. It's still a little bit of play. Um, when people are actually like creating businesses, doing things that have risk involved, where if they're wrong, they will actually lose, that's when you see what people believe. During political season, everything people said, you cannot assume that reflects their actual beliefs. So I actually don't think that that globalization and free trade, that people hate it. I think they hate certain words and buzzwords. They hate this, that, and the other thing. But they don't have some ideological opposition to having more variety and buying things from anywhere that makes sense to them when, when push comes to shove, when there's skin in the game. So that, that's what I would say there. Now, does it matter... It matters a bit to the extent that, to the small extent that politics can, and, and people's expressed, you know, beliefs that that aren't their actual beliefs in the political game, it can sort of have an effect of, like you you start to believe in the power of politics, and then it actually does start to alter sort of your core beliefs and make you actually change your behavior and say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm willing to suffer for some cause that I believe in, um, even though it's against my own self-interest, like it can get tangled. I'm not claiming there's a complete disconnect, but I would not say, I am not willing to say that the American people, for example, are now intellectually opposed to free trade and therefore, um, they're hoping that it ends. Uh, I would say that in the game of politics, which I believe is less important to people than it's ever been, which is why their preferences on politics appear more extreme and shitty than they've ever been. Uh, it's because it is a game, because it's no more important to them than American Idol. Who cares? Who cares if the guy that can't sing wins? It's funny. It's entertaining. It's not real life. What's going to make your life better tomorrow? The new iOS update, not whoever's in office. So you don't care. You're going to throw your vote away. You're going to play with it. It's a play thing. It's fun. It's entertainment. So I, I don't see that as a reflection of what's actually going on in society. Okay, so you laid out your review on how social change happens, um, which is you know an evolution from previous views you've held, and who knows 
what you'll be thinking in you know years from now. But right now, um, you've got this view, and you uh, left another you know very stable, good job to take a risk and, and start up a project as an entrepreneur. Um, so tell us a little bit more about Praxis and how it reflects your your view on making change happen and making the world a better place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was this was the big leap for me, and this was the most freeing thing in in the world to me. And and I should say too that I, there's sort of a couple levels of sort of secrets, <laughs> esoteric wisdom encoded in my view of of, <laughs> of uh, social change. One of those is that undergirding all of this, all positive social change, if you want to engage in it, you will not do it effectively unless you individually can free yourself. You have to emancipate yourself. You have to find a way to live as a free person if you want to affect some sort of broader change in the world, whether you're trying to influence intellectuals with ideas or you're trying to create alternative experiences in the marketplace to really do it well, I think becoming free yourself will, will make you infinitely more effective. I'm not going to say you can't do anything, but so, you know, I'd rather like have somebody go retreat to Walden Pond and learn to emancipate their mind uh, than to try to jump into politics while they're currently a slave. And I think politics tends to make us slaves because we follow the news, you turn on the news and some new thing comes out or a poll and you, it makes you angry. Now the news had the power to choose the mood you were going to be in that day. It robbed you of your you know, agency in a way. And I'm using metaphorical terms. You Obviously, you can still choose. But I think if you let yourself get sucked in, you sort of lose your own power. You become um, like Shawshank Redemption. You become like the guy who's so accustomed to prison, he can't actually handle freedom. And he hangs himself when he's released. Versus Andy Dufresne, who's in prison. And no matter what they do to him, he's free. He's a free man. They just don't know it yet. Um, so I think emancipating yourself is huge. So I kind of had that epiphany and you're working on my own sort of internal freedom. I haven't watched the news or followed it in like 10 years, um, which is the, the most amazing decision I've ever made. Um, besides marrying my wife, I guess. Hi, honey. Um, and the, nice uh, the, the praxis thing, you know, I was working at a place that I loved. I was doing work that I enjoyed. I had a lot of autonomy and I had these beliefs that I had carried with me for over a decade about higher education. I'm like, nobody sees, nobody sees the secret. Higher education, it's no one is purchasing knowledge, a social experience, uh, a network, all this. Other. They're purchasing the credential, period. That's it. That's the only good being bought and sold because every other element could be had for free. You could move to a college town, go sit in classes, do all that stuff and not pay a dime. The only reason people pay tens or thousands or more is to get that piece of paper and the paper signals, you ready for it? It's a real powerful signal. I'm roughly as good as these other guys sitting next to me in the classroom who are like hungover. You know, like I was like, wow, that's a pretty weak signal. That seems pretty easy to beat. But everybody's sort of competing, disrupting a higher education. They're disrupting the wrong stuff. They're trying to disrupt the delivery mechanism of knowledge. That's not the problem. We have no constraints of information. They're trying to disrupt the internal structure of universities or, you know, for-profit versus nonprofit or whatever. That's not the thing. The thing is the credential. And even those few places that are like alternative credentialing, they're still missing the point. They're missing the point that we live in a world where transaction costs are now so low that you can be your own credential. You no longer need a centralized institution to vouch for you. You no longer need to say, Harvard, that's where I went, therefore you can trust me. Because now I can look you up personally and I can see your LinkedIn, your GitHub portfolio, your personal website. I can see you, you can vouch for yourself. You can be your own credential. No one knows this is possible. And I, and I caught wind of this and I thought, all this arguing about 
government subsidies and reform in higher ed and all this stuff. Cause I'd worked in and around higher ed for almost a decade. And these are all arguments. It's all noise. If I'm right, if I'm right in what I think I'm seeing, this is what's beautiful about the marketplace. No one has to believe my arguments. I just have to create value for them and I'll change the world and I'll make a profit. That's beautiful. I want that. I want to be accountable to making profit to prove that I'm creating value. And if I'm creating value by building an alternative to this conveyor belt, I am undermining that system and changing the world. And it goes one level deeper. <laughs> so this whole thing about experiences, what you grow up to believe is normal. That's going to dictate what you believe is possible. And that's going to dictate what kind of freedoms you have, what kind of world you live in. When you consider that, you start to realize that the prospects of a radically freer world by convincing people who are already used to an unfree world is basically non-existent. I mean, you can get some marginal improvements. When you meet people who have grown up unschooled, for example, they whether or not they have any conscious ideology about politics, government, to them, the normal condition of human life is freedom. Learning is something you do on your own. You, you manage your own time. It seems offensive to them for someone to say, now you must do this. Now you can eat lunch. You cannot do this. You must go there. You must learn this. You must get my approval. That's deeply offensive to them because their experience is so contrary. And they're like, that's not normal. No, I'm, I'm not going to allow that. To, to, to paraphrase a, a farmer from the revolutionary era, he, you know, and they said, why did you fight in the war? Was it Thomas Paine? Was it John Locke's ideas? Was, he said, we didn't read any of that stuff. I didn't read anything. I just knew that I'd always been free. And when someone came and told me, you're no longer free, pay a tax, I was offended by that. No, I'm free. And so people who grow up with an experience of freedom, so I started to see that education, the experiences that we have through the education system are so authoritarian and we all think that's normal because it's well-meaning and we think that we have to learn and this is the only way to learn. We have these warped views about it. And so I thought, not only am I demonstrating through the market that this conveyor belt higher ed concept is bogus and you can be a creator and an entrepreneur and a world changer by opting out of it and I can help you do that, but this is the top level and once you show that that's not necessary for success, in fact, it's an impediment, then all the levels beneath it, which are specifically geared to get you into college, become irrelevant one at a time. And you realize that a control, authoritarian, rule-following, credential-seeking high school, middle school, elementary parenting process are completely unnecessary. In fact, they're counter to creative, vibrant, entrepreneurial, fulfilled human beings. More young people start growing up with a higher degree of freedom in their life and education. Now you have a society, a generation of people who know freedom from experience. And once they've tasted that, when you try to impose tyranny on them, it will be foreign to them and they will reject it. That's the power in this method of social change, in my opinion. So you know, it's funny is the next question I was going to ask you was what is your vision for the impact that Praxis will have, say, 20, 30 years from now? But I think that's kind of what you were getting that at at the end there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I like to keep some things close to the vest and I don't like to paint an incredibly detailed, here's my prediction. But at bottom, what motivates me every day is freedom for myself and for others. And at Praxis, we like to say our why for existence is to help young people discover and do what makes them come alive. So to just to, to live as free beings pursuing their own meaning. And we help them do that by saying, first, let's get the biggest fear 
off out of the way. Because every, you know, if you think of Maslow's hierarchy, you can't think about freedom and self-actualization if you're scared about shelter. So we're like, look, you're worried about a job. Let me show you right now, today, not in the future, today, you can actually have a better, more meaningful career with more opportunity, more freedom and flexibility if you get off the conveyor belt and go a different route and build your own credential, be your own credential, get involved in startups, get this experience. So, you know, become sort of your own company. So we'll take care of that first fear of like, will I be a homeless guy, right? And now once you're in, once you're like, okay, cool, you get, you sort of imbibe the praxis mentality and approach, which is like a self-emancipatory thing. And you realize your own creative potential and power. And you realize the opportunity around us today with the technology available. And so the more free people we have, the more people who will not tolerate anything but freedom. And that will start with higher ed. And like I said, it sort of trickles down throughout. So um, I want to stop the conveyor belt that churns out people who believe pain and suffering and obedience to authority is a necessary thing to put up with in order for order and happiness to exist in the world. I'm really, I'm really trying to destroy the Hobbesian assumption that without authority structures imposed on us against our will, we will destroy ourselves. And you can't do that through argument alone. I want to show. I want to show. Look at this radically free person who got off the conveyor belt, who has no degree, who had no formal credentials. They went and did it. They're living and they're not running around in the streets homeless or murdering people. <laughs> so I want to show through example that living free is the way to go. So besides Praxis, what other projects out there are you really excited about that could have an impact um, for social change? Yeah, I mean, to me, anything in the realm of unschooling um, is really exciting to me. Anything in the realm of things that people assume must be done by big subsidized, warped, monopolized institutions being done outside of them, those are powerful. So Praxis being one example of like, you don't need college to be smart and have a job uh, and and build a career. Um, but there's also things, my friend, Steve Patterson, I love his, uh, he's, he's basically a intellectual outside of academia. There are actually groups, there's a cool place called Leverage Research. There's actually venture capital firms right now. They're all well aware that the biggest, best ideas, even fundamental research in science, even social sciences and philosophy are being squelched by academic institutions, centralized institutions, and they're starting to create intellectuals outside of those realms. So I'm still very interested in that in that realm of ideas. And I think getting divorcing intellectuals and research and philosophy and sciences from centralized authoritarian institutions is really exciting to me, as well as obviously all the technological um, advances that just that just decentralize everything. I mean, it's just you, you reduce the transaction cost and you no longer need centralization, um, which makes the ability for humans. It's like, it's like Pandora's box is open. The cat is out of the bag, whatever metaphor you want to use, you can't shut it down now. Um, and I love that the undermining, there are more people digging under the walls of the fortress than there are people trying to reinforce and build it. And it's an, I think I genuinely believe we will look back maybe 50 years, maybe 150 years. I don't know. We will look back at this barbarous relic called the state with the same shock and indignation that we look back on the institution of slavery. Hey, last question for you. Um, what What is your parting words, your number one piece of advice for someone who wants to go out and create change, make the world a better place? Start with you. You know, if you're not a free person yourself, let Leonard Reed has this great I think you can still find it on YouTube, this old black and white thing, Leonard Reed, the founder of Fee, this talk about freedom and he, t and he uses the analogy, he shuts off all the lights in the room and, and lights a, a candle or a lighter something and says, look, no matter how much darkness is, you can see one light. 
And if you become an enlightened, free person yourself, people will see that. They'll be drawn to it. They'll be attracted to it. And you will have the ability to create so much change. It's like the scales will fall from your eyes. You'll understand that this silly game of politics and getting angry at the news and trying to browbeat your friends into reading Robert Nozick or whatever it might be, that all that stuff is, is actually in some ways, can the, the more you understand about how powerful freedom is, sometimes the first reaction is to actually become less free because now all you see is chains all around you and all you see is the ugly ham fist of the state and you start to get angry and now you're just like an angry person who's disempowered. You've got to overcome that. Got to overcome that, that feeling that you are a victim and you are helpless. Become, as Camus said, so free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. Awesome. Well, again, you can check out Isaac's work uh, at IsaacMorehouse.com. Definitely check out his podcast. Uh, and you can learn more about Praxis at www.discoverpraxis.com. Um, Isaac, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks, Matt. I, this is probably the episode where you talked the least. I had a cup of coffee beforehand, which was a bad idea. So thanks for letting me ramble. <laughs> no worries. Thank you for coming on. It was, it was a, a blast. You bet. Um, Have a great day. Thank you, too. Uh, listeners, thanks again for tuning in. You can check us out at socialchangepodcast.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash socialchangepodcast, and on Twitter at socialchangepod. <laughs>